Well, welcome to Grace, everybody, this weekend. Uh, we're in a series right now that we call 30 in 30, uh, Sowing the Seeds of a Movement. And 30 in 30, uh, that title is the broad descriptor of the mission and the vision of Grace Church. So uh, we would look and believe together that God has called us or asked us to start 30 churches in the course of 30 years. And we often call those churches campuses here at Grace Church, so start 30 campuses in 30 years. Uh, we looked at the book of Acts a few years ago, and the book of Acts and the Bible played out over about a 30-year time frame, and we said, God, if you did that uh, in the book of Acts, could you do something like that through us? Uh, could you work supernaturally through us, and could you allow us to be the foundation for a movement that lasted uh, generations. And if we gave ourselves and kind of went all in for that, could you, would you work through us in that? So 30 and 30. And what we're doing is we're looking and saying, uh, instead of having one massive location, uh, we decided a few years ago we didn't want the, the multiple thousand seats of auditorium and the big, big buildings. We wanted to take the community to the church, not just bring the community uh, into our buildings. And we decided to multiply. We decided to look and say, are there places in Northeast Ohio, around Akron especially, where the gospel is not clear, is not easily accessible, and could we go to those places and start campuses or churches there instead? And so we've been doing that for the last few years. Uh, the Bath campus that we're sitting in right now is a campus of Grace Church. The mother campus was down in Norton. And then a few years ago, we started the Medina East campus out on Route 18, and God has blessed that in huge ways. They run seven, 800 people a weekend. Uh, last year, we started the Barberton campus of Grace Church, uh, which uh, runs a couple hundred people a weekend, and uh, we're going to be announcing very, very soon the fifth campus of Grace Church, and so we're excited about that as well, and that's something that we want to continue to do for the years to come. Uh, as we have done that, one of the things we know that has happened is over the last three or four years, because of that commitment to multiplication, about a thousand people have uh, cycled, that was pleasant, wasn't it? Uh, about a thousand people have uh, cycled through the Bath campus and gone out and helped to start other campuses, the Medina campus, Barberton campus, reinforced the Norton campus, etc. What's been funny or weird about that thousand people that have gone is our attendances have never changed. In fact, they're up a little bit. So we know that in the last three or four years that even though a thousand of us have gone out to help start other campuses, about a thousand of us have come and joined uh, the Bath campus. So many of you have done that over the last three or four years. Uh, many of you have accepted Christ and begin in your, your journey with Christ here. And so we know that that's true of us as, as the Bath campus. And so we thought it was important to take some time this winter and kind of reestablish some of the foundational things about how to have a relationship with Christ and then who we are as a church and, and what we want to give ourselves to so we can continue to be unified in those ways. Uh, so we did a, a Creatures of Habit series at the beginning of the year, and those were just basic practices of what it means to be a Christian, prayer, fasting, time in God's Word, a time alone with the Lord. And right now I'm taking us through kind of basic foundations of what it means to be a part of Grace Church, what we believe a church is. And then our next series will continue with that. Why does God tell us to do certain things like baptism and communion and worship? And what is that and why, do we, why should we do it? And we wanna make sure that we all have that foundation and we're all kind of on the same page with it. So 30 and 30, what we're doing is we're talking about the corporate part of it, the church part of it, and what we believe God has called us to do corporately and then how that shows up in our lives on a personal level. And so last weekend we said that God calls us individually to be people of justice and mercy and humility. And we said that the church is the sum total of its individual parts. So as a congregation then, as a group of people, uh, we become a church of justice, mercy, and humility. And this weekend I wanna talk about one of the other kind of core things that makes up a, a church, a local church, and I wanna talk about the idea of missions. What is missions and how does that play out in our lives and why is it so important that we lock into that, okay? Now, if you grew up in church, you probably recognize that word, missions, and you may even know what a missionary is. We're gonna talk about all that here in a minute. If you are very new to your faith, maybe you've heard that bouncing around a little bit, but may not know, I'm gonna explain it to you here. And if, you're, if you are uh, investigating your faith, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is this. 
Everything we're going to talk about today, you're not on the hook for. You are completely off the hook at church this weekend. Because everything that God is uh, going to show us today, he, he directs it specifically to Christ followers. So if you're not a Christ follower yet, uh, you don't have to worry about it. This is what will be helpful for you this weekend. The church will make sense to you this weekend. So when you look at like your Christian friends or like Christianity in the church and you're always like, why are those people so weird? Why do they do, what they, why do, they do those things? We'll explain that to you. And a lot of what it means to be a Christian, a lot of the ways that the church functions uh, will we'll clarify with you as we go throughout our conversation today, okay? For those of us who are Christ followers, this is a really big conversation. It's a core element of what it means to be a Christ follower, and you'll see by the time we're done, it's something that we have to interact with personally uh, and kind of satisfy the question in a personal way in our own lives, okay? So missions, let's talk about it. What is missions? What do we even mean by missions? Missions is this, I just put a definition down. Missions is the intentional work of taking the gospel to people groups and cultures that are outside my natural path of life. It's the intentional work of taking the gospel to people groups and cultures that are outside my natural path of life. So if you think about loving your neighbor or you think kind of generally about evangelism, if you're familiar with that word, evangelism is me intentionally taking the gospel to people within my natural path of life, my roommate, my neighbors, my teammate, etc. right? So I'm gonna look at the people that God has put in my life and I'm gonna help them know who Christ is and how much he loves them. Missions is me doing that intentionally with people outside my path of life. I'm gonna look and say, those people over there, I wanna be a part or make sure that they know who Christ is and how to interact with them, and I'm gonna do that work intentionally. So that's the idea of missions. Now, a missionary is, someone, is the person who does that, right? So a missionary is a person sent to another culture to introduce the gospel of Jesus to that culture in a manner that makes sense in that culture. So it's a person sent to, they're gonna intentionally take the gospel to another culture to introduce the gospel to that culture in a way that makes sense in that culture. So a missionary is someone that's called by God to go to those places that are outside their natural path of life. And they may have to learn a language, they may have to learn customs, they may have to learn a culture, but they're gonna show up and they're gonna commit their lives to living in that place so they can understand the culture and they can understand the people and they can do the hard work of making Jesus make sense in that culture, okay? By the way, all of us are products of missionaries. I don't know if you know this, but Christianity didn't start in Ohio, right? So it, it started in Jerusalem, in the Middle East. So missionaries over time, that's how you and I would have been exposed to the gospel, that the church would have engaged the mission missionaries would have been sent, they would have crossed cultural lines, learn languages, learn customs, all that kind of stuff. It's how you and I would wind up uh, at, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So missions is that work, the missionary is the person that goes, and Jesus says, if you are my follower, and if you are committed to me, you will engage this process of missions on some level. In fact, it's one of the clearest directives that Jesus gives us. So when you look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says his words, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. When Jesus says go and make disciples of all nations, the word nations in the Bible means people groups, right? So he's not just saying, go, go and make disciples of Canada, you know? Go and make disciples of Mexico. He's saying, go to all the people groups, all the tribes, all the nations of people, and make disciples of them. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And that is a directive that Christ uh, uh, specifically gives to all who are his followers. He reinforces this in a different way in Acts chapter one, verse eight, when he says, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, it, Jesus says that to his disciples. In fact, it's the last thing he said before he went back to heaven. And then he says it through scripture 
to us. You will be my witnesses of who I am, my gospel, who I am, my love for people, people's need for me. And you're to do that in Jerusalem, which we would think of that as like Akron, and Judea, maybe Ohio, and Samaria, North America, and to the ends of the earth. My followers shall go everywhere and proclaim the gospel to everyone, to all people groups, and help them become my disciples. And that's not a directive that goes to a few, and that's not a directive that goes to an organization that we often term the church. That is a directive that comes to me as a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's something that I have to answer and run to ground in my own life. I have to figure out, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how do I interact with the Great Commission? What is God asking me to do? How do I engage missions? Am I called to be a missionary? And what should I do with that on an individual basis, all right? And that's what I wanna talk with you about this weekend. Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, those terms and those passages would be familiar to us, I bet, all right? I bet you that most of us have heard about the Great Commission, that most of us know something about missions or missionaries, and so here's what I would kind of propose. I do not believe that our hesitancy to engage in missions or to think about being a missionary is tied to our lack of understanding of what it is. If you grew up in the church, then you, you have heard this. Any tradition of Christianity, you've heard something of missions and missionaries in the Great Commandment. It's not a lack of knowing the truth or even understanding the truth, it's a lack of actually believing the truth on a level that causes my life to be altered, right? Because we can accept truths on very different levels, correct? There are certain truths that we know without a shadow of a doubt, certain truths that we would accept as factual, but they don't actually result in life change, right? So for instance, I know without a shadow of a doubt that if I want to have low blood pressure and not clog my arteries, I should eat healthy and exercise on a regular basis. That if I wanna live a healthy lifestyle, that I should probably eat more greens, I should probably eat grilled chicken, and I should go to the box on a regular basis and exercise, right? I know that to be factual. All of us know that. We've all been raised in a culture that would proclaim that. That's not a mystery. It's not lack of information that is the result of us not living that way. I know that to be true. I accept that to be true. But if you go to my office right now and open the bottom left-hand drawer, you will find Twinkies in it. Right? It's a truth that I know, a truth that I have accepted as fact, but it hasn't actually caused life change. Now there's other truths that I accept and I know, and they actually cause life change. Somewhere along the line in my life, somebody, probably my mom, told me that I should look both ways before I cross the road or I'll get hit by a car. In my whole life, I have received that truth and recognized that truth, and it has caused life change in me. My whole life, I have looked both ways before I crossed the road because I don't want to get hit by a car. That truth has so deeply affected me. I have adopted that as true so much in my life. It has caused so much life change in my life that I've actually discipled my children in this truth. I have personally looked at all of them and said, you need to look both ways before you cross the road or you'll get hit by a car. In fact, I will intervene in their life if I see them not living by that truth. Our driveway happens to have a hill to it and it's an awesome hill to skateboard down or to ride your big wheel down. And if I see my kids doing that and they rush out into the street and they didn't look both ways before they did it, I will leave the house, I will walk out and I will yell at them. And I will say, you must know this truth and you must live by this truth because if you don't look both ways before you go out in the street, you could get hit by a car. That truth has so affected my life, I believe it so deeply, that I would actually intervene with a stranger to proclaim that truth. If we were walking downtown and you were texting while walking and you were about ready to step out into the street, I would yell at you, hey, look out, there's a car coming. I would have no apology for telling you that truth. I would gladly tell you that truth. I would love you enough to tell you that truth because I believe that truth, that truth so deeply, it has actually caused life change within me. You need to look both ways before you cross the street or you'll get hit by a car. Now, I know the other truth just as well. You need to eat salad and grilled, grilled chicken and go to the box and work out, but there's Swinkies in my desk. 
I know both truths, but one I have actually accepted so much so that it's a governor in my life. I now habitually look both ways before I cross the street. Many of us know what missions is. Many of us know what a missionary is. Many of us know what the Great Commission is, that we should, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am told, I'm directed, I should be a part of going to all the world and preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations, every people group. I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am to be a witness. I know that fact, I was raised on that fact in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I know that that is a prime directive truth in the scripture. If you were gonna boil the commands of God down to three or four, this would be in the top one or two. But has it actually caused life-altering behavior in my life? And to the degree that it has or has not is to the degree that I actually have accepted it as true. So we don't struggle for information on this. This is easy peasy stuff. I mean, it's right there on top in the Bible. You don't have to be a theologian to get that. But do we act on it? Have we personalized it? Has it actually caused life-changing behavior in our life? Well, that's a, that's a very different conversation. And my assertion would be this. The reason that the Great Commission has not caused life-altering behavior in our lives is because there's actually other things in the Scripture that are just as clear that we don't actually believe. And even though we know them, we don't believe them. And if we believe them, we would act on them. And the corporate act of acting on those individual truths would be us participating in the Great Commission. So I want to show you these four things. And I want to show you what they are and ask if you really believe them and then kind of help you weigh that through. And then individually, as you and I answer those questions, we will wrestle with missions and whether or not we are participating and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Here's the first thing. The first belief that we know but actually does not cause life-changing behavior in us is this. We don't really believe, I contend, that hell is real. Most of us don't actually believe that hell is real. We know it exists, maybe, but we don't actually believe that hell is real real and yet one of the clearest things you can find in the scripture it's easy to see is that hell is real and human beings are in grave danger of going there the bible says this in romans chapter 8 verse 18 and through 20 the wrath of god is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since they made since what be made known about god is plain to them because god has made it plain for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what is made so that people are without excuse. God says, listen, I have written on the heart of every human being who has ever lived and ever will live a desire to search for God. I have made myself plain. Human beings are the only element of creation. We're the only living thing on the planet that has to satisfy a God question. Squirrels don't do it, dogs don't do it, and cats aren't welcome into heaven anyways. Right? We're the only human being, we're the only part of creation, the only living thing on the planet that has to satisfy the God question. And the Bible says there in Romans, we satisfy it one of two ways. We either yield to God because what's clear about God is plainly seen, it's obvious that there's a God, and so we'll humble ourselves, we'll yield to that, and we'll pursue God, or we will deny it with our wickedness. We will harden our hearts and deny God. Only human beings do that. Only human beings will either pursue God and worship God and come to church and pray and those kind of things, or they will build very sophisticated defense systems of why there is no God. They'll become atheists. I would contend that there's no such things as atheists because we do not build very sophisticated defense systems for things we actually do not believe in. You don't find a lot of books about why there's no unicorns. You find a lot of books about why there's no God and it's not because we don't believe there's a God, it's because we have to harden our hearts and our minds to deny it so we don't have to yield to it. We're the only parts of creation that does that. Why? Because God created us that way. How come? So we would search for him. We're pre-programmed to search for God. And sin, the Bible says, is what hardens our hearts. I don't want to yield to God, I want to reject God, so I'm gonna figure out ways to discount him in our lives. And the Bible warns us that the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn for what we do, what we earn for ourselves is spiritual death. 
And the Bible says those who die in their sin, who are never forgiven by a loving God, will go to hell. There really is a heaven and there really is a hell. And we all love the fact that there's a heaven and most of us deny the fact that there's a hell. Even if we admit it, in fact, there's Twinkies in our drawer. We don't actually live that way and yet Jesus himself says this is the facts. If you look in your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 25, it's page 695 in those Bibles that are in the chairs, These are Jesus' words. He himself says this, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus comes in all of his glory and all the angels with him who will sit on his glorious throne, all the nations, all the people groups, every tribe, every nation, will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Look at verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me you who are cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 45, and then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus himself, crystal clear, and then it's all through the Bible. Hell is easy peasy in the Bible. It's right there on top. You don't have to be a theologian to see that there's a separation. That if I deny God while I'm on earth, that denial, that trajectory of my life will continue eternally and I will wind up in hell. It's not that I might go to hell one day, it's that I'm on my way there now. And when I stand before God in judgment, if I die and I have always denied God with my life, then God will allow me to deny him for eternity. He will just give me what I want. I wanna live apart from God and God will finally acquiesce and say, okay, you can. I will separate from you and you will go to eternal punishment. The inverse is true. If I pursue God with my life, that pursuit, that trajectory will plot out for eternity. And if I wanna be with God and follow God and know God, God will welcome me into heaven and I will get to know God and follow God and be with God for all of eternity. Christ himself, this is Jesus, will separate us because there really is a heaven and there really is a hell, right? Now, most of us know that, but we don't actually believe it to the point that it's caused life-altering behavior. Because if I believed in a hell, and if I believed that people's very souls are at stake, and they were gonna be forever separated from God and punished eternally, and I loved those people, whether they were my children that I would warn, or my family, or my friends, or a stranger about ready to walk into traffic, I would intervene. Part of the reasons why we don't participate in missions or even think of it as a personal question is because we don't actually believe in hell. And we get criticism for it and somebody might say, well, you're, so you're threatening me with hell. I'm not threatening you with hell. It's like me looking at a smoker and saying, if you keep smoking, you're at risk of cancer. You should stop it. This is what Jesus is doing. If you quit denying me, you're at risk of losing your eternal soul. You should stop it. It's not a threat, it's a warning. This is the trajectory of your life and it must be intervened. If you're going to walk into traffic and you don't look both ways, you're going to get hit by a car. I'm not being a jerk, I'm being kind. And one of the reasons why we do not participate or think of the Great Commission as a personal part of my relationship with God is because on a practical level we don't believe in hell. There's Twinkies in the drawer. Here's a second belief that we struggle with, that we know but we don't lock onto. It's this. It's the belief that Jesus is the only hope of rescue. Now we would acknowledge that but we struggle sometimes to live by it. And again, Jesus is the one who says this. If you flip to the Bibles, uh, uh, to the right a little bit in your Bible, to John chapter three, you'll come across some very familiar verses. And these are Jesus' words, and this is what he says in verse 14. Just as the Son of Man, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, Jesus, will be lifted up. Jesus will die on the cross for us. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life in him. Verse 16, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Jesus says, listen, there is a hell, there is sin, the wages of that sin is death, and I am the only hope of rescue. I am the one who came to intervene. I was sent by my father, I was lifted up. I paid a debt I didn't know for you who owe a debt that you cannot pay. I provided a way of escape and I am the only way of escape. It's Jesus himself who says in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, the life and no one comes to the father except through me. And if I believe there's a hell and if I personally have accepted the salvation of Jesus Christ, but I don't proclaim that. See, we struggle. One of the most unpopular beliefs about Christianity today is what's called monotheism. That's just a big fancy word that means there's only one God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and the core of your beliefs is that truth, there is only one God, there is only one way to heaven. And Christianity and its very, very core, that's why we are a proselytizing faith. We actually believe that you should stop believing in anything else that you believe in. You should turn from those beliefs because they're false and you should only believe in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a very unpopular view in our culture today where we wanna coexist and we wanna believe that all roads lead to heaven but it's Jesus himself who says no they don't. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm life. That's not a teaching of the church, that's a teaching of Christ. And so as a monotheistic faith, Jesus, making that claim about himself, looks at you and I and says, you gotta go tell people, every tribe, every nation, all people groups, that their good intentions don't get them to heaven, that their faith system is false, that there is a God and I am he, and I am the only hope of rescue, and if they do not acknowledge me and do not surrender to me, they'll go to hell, because it's real. That's a core belief of Christianity and our hesitancy to say that and to believe that. While we acknowledge it and many of us would say we've chosen it, there's Twinkies in the drawer. It actually hasn't caused a life altering faith. Because if I believe that there's a hell and I believe that Jesus is the only way of rescue, then I'll look both ways before I cross the road, and by the way, I'll intervene when you're about ready to get hit by traffic. The third belief that we sometimes actually struggle with, we know it, but we actually struggle with it, is this. It's the belief that the church is the, procla is the proclaimer of hope to the world. The church is the proclaimer of hope to the world. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter three, verse 10. His intent, Jesus' intent, was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. It's this idea. There's a hell. Christ came to rescue. He gave his life on the cross. And then he leaves a people that he calls out, which is what the word church means. It means called out ones. He leaves a people that he's called out to proclaim the truth that you're a sinner and there's a God that loves you. Not a God that's out to get you, a God that came to rescue you. And the church, the, his intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom, the knowledge of God comes through the church. This is where suddenly the church is way more than a social institution. The church is not a not-for-profit that does nice things for poor people. The church is not a religious institution. The church very well may do things to earn the right of relationships for, with people who, who, uh, who have needs because we wanna love all people, but our love is not complete until we proclaim the manifold wisdom of God, until we let you know, here's a cup of cool water, here's food, here's medicine. You can have all of this freely, and as you trust this, as we give you these things, we also want you to know that there's a savior, his name is Jesus. It's the church who proclaims. In fact, I would argue it's the point of the church. God didn't give the church to the church. He gave the church to the world. The whole reason we exist is to propel the mission of God. And when the church does not do that, it ceases to be a church.
If you gather together with a group of friends and you read the Bible and you pray for each other and that's all you ever do, you're not functioning as the church, you're functioning as a book club. Unless there's an outcome, see, that's when the church becomes the church. The, the point of the church is not to build buildings or to make ourselves exist. If we're not participating in missions, then we're not participating in the calling that God has for his people. And so many of us, we would say that, right? We would know it, but do we believe it? Or is the church about our preferences? And do I like the band? And is the music what I want? And I hope Jeff is funny this weekend. And all those kind of things, and yet that's not what we are. We are more than that. We are more than services. So like when we, when we do things like this vision gathering stuff, we're, we're, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. We're talking about the core of why we exist, right? So do I believe that there's a hell? Do I believe that Jesus is the only hope of rescue? Do I actually believe that the church, the spiritual entity of the church, is the proclaimer of the truth, right? The manifold wisdom of God is made known through us. Here's the fourth belief that I think we struggle with sometimes. We struggle with believing that I am the church. So the church is made up of the sum total of its individual parts. We'll say things like I'm going to church, and that, that's fine, it's not a big deal, it's just the way that we talk, but it, that's, there's no idea of that we we should say something if we're being correct we would say i'm going to the gathering of the church i am the church you are the church the church is not a thing out there somewhere it's not a group of people the church is you and i the church is not an institution so it's not that the church yeah the church should do missions the church, yeah, man, they really need to tell those people. The church, they gotta, I, I'm really proud that my church plants churches. No, that, that would be a disconnect. You are the church, I am the church, and that means that the calling God puts on his church is actually a calling that he places on your individual life. I love the way the Apostle Paul deals with this in Romans. If, if you flip over to Romans chapter 10, he breaks this all the way down to the individual person. Romans chapter 10, he's talking about all of these truths kind of connected with each other. And he says this in verse 13. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? So that's the idea that, that their hell is real and Jesus is the only hope and the church is the one who proclaims that hope. The manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. And so we, it, it's the church is the reason why we know there's a hell, we know there's a heaven, we know there's a savior, okay? So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. That all comes through the church, the corporate entity, the sum total of the individual parts called the church. And then he breaks it down this way. How then, can they call on one of whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news. Paul takes this, this big, huge, universal calling of the church and he breaks it all down to the individual who walks out and tells. I am the church, the calling of Christ on the church is my calling, that means this. If I believe there's a hell and I believe that Jesus is the only escape and I believe that the wisdom or the, the knowledge of God is proclaimed by the church and I am the church, then all of a sudden I have to figure out how do I participate in the Great Commission? Because it's my feet that participate. It's my life that is called upon. The Great Commission is not a thing that a, another group of people do. Not if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission, the witnesses that Jesus talks about, and that's me. And I have to personally, individually run to ground, decide, figure out how do I personally engage in this idea? What am I supposed to do about it? If I do not run that to ground and figure that out personally, then I will always live with Twinkies in my drawer. I know it, I can quote it, I understand it, I know. 
when I run that to ground and engage that personally and actually get kind of that answer from God, I'll start to look both ways before I cross the street. It will be a truth that I believe and engage in, a truth I'm not apologetic for, a truth that I, I say boldly because I know without a shadow of a doubt that if I don't look both ways before I cross the street, I could get hit by a car, see? Now, what, what I wanna do is I wanna try to give you guys some handles to grab hold, because I know this is a big deal, heavy conversation, right? So it's a big deal, so I wanna give you some handles to try to grab hold of with this. Now, I wanna, I wanna frame up these handles first. Okay, everybody look at me, ready? I'm not giving you options. So when, uh, when I give you one, you may be like, yeah, I'll take that one, I'll do that. Nope, that's the wrong way to think about this. We have to chase these to ground, and so we're, we're including ourselves and saying, God, are you calling me to do one? Are you calling me to do three? Are you calling me to do all the above? Okay, so I'm not giving you a smorgasbord and saying, you can get off the hook if you do one of these four things, right? I'm giving you paradigms that we need to think this through on every level. That make sense? Okay, here's the first thing. One of the responses, or, or one of the first things I need to do in responding to this is this. I need to, you need to open your eyes. You need to open your eyes. These are Jesus' words. John chapter four, verse 35. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. One of the ways that we cause this truth to actually be something that causes life-altering behavior within us is by seeing or changing the lenses through which we see life. That's what Jesus was saying. He, he's, saying he's saying, look now. There are 6,000 people groups on the planet that do not know the name of Jesus. And the church is entrusted with making that known, translating the Bible, sending the missionaries, figuring it, crossing the cultures and making Jesus make sense in a culture that's not our own. There's tons of, there's two billion people on the planet that do not know the name of Jesus, right? And it's the church, the, the church has been entrusted with that. So I have to open my eyes, I have to start seeing the world through Jesus's eyes. Jesus would look at every human being with a soul, and he would look at them with a soul, that, and that soul has an eternal destiny. That person is gonna go to heaven or they're gonna go to hell. That's how God would see the world. And he loves, and he wishes that none would perish. And he came, and he died, and he rose again. And then he called a people to himself and said, now you do this. So when I open my eyes and I see the world through the lenses of Jesus, it causes me to live differently, personally, locally, and even globally. Because then I'm gonna see the need and I'm gonna respond to it, I'm gonna understand this is part of the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So step one, I gotta open my eyes and see the world as Christ sees it, okay? Number two, another response we can have is this. We can pray, we can pray. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse two. Jesus told him, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. There are actually very, very few things that Jesus specifically tells his followers to pray for, and this is one of them. Where Jesus comes out crystal clear, easy peasy, clears a bell and says, you need to pray for this. Pray that God sends out workers into the harvest field. So in our prayer times, we talked about this in Creatures of Habit, in our prayer times, our daily time with God when we're praying without ceasing, one of the things that I should pray for that should be at the, like on the top of the list is I should pray that God raises up workers, missionaries, who will go into the harvest field and will take the gospel, okay? And we can do this, guys. We pray for our food, we pray for safety, we pray for a good night's sleep, We've all been praying for the Browns for 20 years now, right? So we, we're prayers, that's what we do. Jesus says, I want you to pray for workers. Now here's the deal. This is where it cannot be a smorgasbord because many of us are like, oh, I'm in on that one. That, that's my answer, I'll pray. Nope, here's the thing. As you pray, as you pray, put your name on the list. God, send out workers in the harvest field 
and I'm willing to be one. So I'm gonna pray for my, if you want me to go, I'll go. Just lead me, direct me, show me, okay? So I can pray, I can open my eyes. Here's the third thing, I can give. Give, Jesus again, his words, Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Bible is super duper, easy peasy, right on top clear, that our checkbook and our hearts are totally interlinked with each other. And what I give my money to is what I give my heart to. Now here's an interesting stat for you. Uh, Most stats say this, the average North American Christian gives 2% of their income to the Lord's work. Which is fascinating because the Bible says specifically to give no less than 10%. So when I give 2% of my income to the Lord's work, what that does is it exposes my heart. And this is what it means, and I'm gonna say this, this is strong, I love you, you gotta trust that. It means I don't care about the Lord's work. Because we make happen financially what we actually care about. Most of us don't get our cell phones turned off because we're gonna pay that bill. Rarely does the cable get shut down. Somehow we find money for vacation. But when God says give no less than 10%, oh my goodness. Missions cost a ton of money, it does. It's hyper expensive to do. But the harvest is ripe. God says pray for workers, well how do we get those workers to the harvest? There's a financial component and the reason that oftentimes the wealthiest group of believers in the history of the planet do not have the resources to send workers is because we have not actually believed that hell is real, Jesus is the answer, the church is a proclaimer, and I am the church. And that lack of belief has not caused life-altering behavior. I know it, I know it's important, but there's Twinkies in my desk. And guys, I love you. I'm just being honest. If you do not give to the Lord's work, you don't believe in the Lord's work. Because we make happen financially what we actually love and care about, and that's Jesus, not Jeff. My heart and my treasure are interlinked, and my checkbook reveals my heart. I gotta open my eyes. I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna give. Here's the last thing, number four. I can go. I can go. Some of us, all of us, need to satisfy how we're gonna participate in the Great Commission. Some of us are called to stay, right? Some of us are prayers. Some of us are called to, to be a part of the local church and locally evangelize. Some of us are called to stay and we generate the resources and we generate the support. That can all be legitimate, but you cannot assume that you're called to stay until you've ruled out the, the, uh, the possibility that you're called to go. Because if I read the Bible correctly, going is always the first response. Staying is the backup plan. And some of us are called to go. God is calling you to be the missionary. Now I remember years ago when I was setting down and I was hearing a sermon and back in the old days we used to call it the preacher, right? So that the, instead of the speaker who conversed, it was the preacher who preached. And I remember that the preacher preached and he said something along the lines of some of you are called to be in the full-time ministry. And I was sitting with a group of friends and I heard that preacher say that and we walked out of that and it was fascinating. Most of my friends barely remember that he said it and I could not forget it. And I knew that God had called me to full-time ministry and that if I did not do that with my life, I was gonna be disobeying God. He doesn't call everybody, but he called me and I had to go. If you talk to my wife, Heidi, she'll tell you a story about listening to a preacher preach. 
that preacher happened to be my big brother. And she'll tell you a story about hearing a preacher preach. And he said, some of you are called to be in full-time ministry. And Heidi would tell you, most of, our fr- most of her friends remembered kind of that he said that and she couldn't forget it. And she knew that she was called to be in full-time ministry. If you talk to Christy Keir, she'll tell you, I was listening to a preacher preach. And he said that some of you are called to be in full-time ministry. And she'll tell you the same thing. Most of my friends didn't remember it and I couldn't forget it some of you are called and you're called to be in full-time ministry and when I'm saying this to you right now I, right now your heart's a pumping and you know God is speaking to you because you're called to go you're called to do it and you know full well that if you don't you'll be disobeying God because he's put a unique and a special calling on your life some of you young people you're called to go listen do not waste your life being an adrenaline junkie. That's dumb. If you are looking for a thrill and you go bungee jumping and that bungee cord breaks and you die, I'm not sure you're getting into heaven. I'll just be honest with you. You'll stand before God and they'd be like, you did what? No, right? I mean, that's dumb. If you're looking for a thrill, if you're looking for an adventure, if you're bored with the North American lifestyle and you wanna amp it up, do it for the Lord. I can take you to places where your heart will thump and your adrenaline will pump. If you wanna stand with me in the poorest country on the planet and be stopped at a roadblock because they're looking for Boca Raton terrorists and they pull you out of a car and you're standing like this and there's a machine gun in your face. This happened to me in May. My son Josiah was with me. We're standing like this being frisked by people and they were not gentle. I looked at Josiah and I was like, let's not tell mom <laughs> about this one, right? And we did, and mom, Heidi's not afraid of that stuff. You want that? We can set that up. You want to take an adventure of a life? Do it for the Lord, because you're called to go. The reason that you're doing this dumb stuff and looking for a thrill is because you're not supposed to be here. So you've got to fill it in with mindless adrenaline. But if you want to give your life, go. By the way, if you're older and you're retired, don't sit on a beach and rot. That's dumb. Praise God that you don't need finances anymore, that your retirement accounts are kicking off. So go, give yourself to the kingdom of God. The last missionaries that we sent out full time were both in their late 50s, early 60s. And they both looked, this is the Jensen's and the Palmers, they both looked and said, we're at a point in life where we, can, we have a different financial freedom. We're young enough that we still have health. We wanna go do something great for the Lord. Praise God we don't have to show up and install water heaters anymore. And they liquidated their life and they went. If you're older, maybe you're called to go. Staying is the backup plan. Going is the prime directive. The calling is something that every single one of us must wrestle through on a personal level. And mission, missions, is one of the prime drivers of the local church, right? All right, let me give you three questions to chew on. Here's the first one, ready? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in hell? Listen, I love you, but I'm just gonna be straight with you. If you have a family member, a friend, a roommate, a coworker, a stranger, and you, you have side conversations about how they're throwing their lives away, and side conversations about being worried about their soul, and you've never intervened, then you do not believe in hell. You have Twinkies in your drawer. Because when we really believe something, it causes life-altering behavior. Do you believe in hell? Just honestly, do you? If you're here this weekend and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, do you believe in hell? 
because following Jesus is not about rounding ourselves off as a person. It's not just about our spirituality or just about life improvements. Those are byproducts, and they're wonderful byproducts. But the very core of why I would repent of my sin and turn my life over and surrender myself to Christ is because there is a heaven and there is a hell and there is one God. And if you've never believed that or accepted that or engaged in that, then you don't have salvation. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. Do you believe in hell? Second question, do you believe you're really a part of the church? Being a part of the church and attending a church service are, are not necessarily related to each other. Do you believe you're a part of the church? That when you accepted Christ, your sins were forgiven, you were indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and you were grafted into the spiritual entity called the church. If you believe that, then the Great Commission is something that winds up being a personal calling. And it has to be satisfied. So have you, do you actually believe that? Right. Third question, are you called to go? Is God calling you? When I say that out loud, for some reason, that's the thing you're not gonna be able to forget. And you're gonna, you're gonna leave here this weekend and you're gonna look and say, now my life is discombobulated because I can't divorce myself with this question. And you're gonna be unsettled and you're not gonna be able to sleep tonight. You're gonna message me on Facebook and say, you messed up my life. And I'm gonna message you back and say, aha. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Are you called to go? Listen, I love you. God should never have to ask twice. So are you called to go? Have you run that question to ground? All right, I'm gonna pray and the band will come out and they'll, they'll help create a little space for us to clear our heads. And I, guys, I encourage you to, re this is big questions, right? Heavy stuff, I know that, it's good for us. But wrestle this to ground, answer these questions. What do you actually believe? What has caused life-altering behavior in your life? Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you loved us so much that it caused life-altering behavior in your life. You left heaven, you came to earth, you gave your life for us. So God, we want to give our lives back. We wanna love as we've been loved. We wanna seek those who don't know you just like you sought us. And Lord, we want to engage this great commandment in the personal way that you've called us to. So God, even now, give us humility, give us openness. Holy Spirit, help us and lead us in the personal ways that you would lead us. Do that now, Jesus. In your name we ask, amen.